The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Six In Which the Molly Meets Elusive A strengthening wind carried the Molly eastward under a sky grey from horizon to horizon. Sailing close hauled on the port tack, the crew watched the land recede to a green smudge and waited for Roaring Jack's order to go about. The Molly was at an angle where she sailed best, and the skipper was loath to leave the good wind and head toward the shore, where he knew the breeze would be fitful at best. Sitting cross-legged on the cockpit sole, Cam looked at the crew one by one. Red Ian was sitting on the cabin top. He seemed content with the chuckle of water under the bow and the rise and fall of the boat as she lifted to the long swells of the open ocean. No problems there, Cam thought. He looked up at Roaring Jack, and narrowed his eyes, as if he could somehow look into what was going on below that thatch of red hair. The skipper's outburst the night before had demonstrated that Roaring Jack persisted in believing Yan's contorted interpretation of events. When Cam scanned Skarm's face as he stood in the companionway, he guessed that the old sailor shared his concern. Finally he looked at Yan who was leaning over the cockpit combing, looking miserably over the stern at the receding land. The night before, Yan had been less than enthusiastic about continuing the search for Estrella, but when Roaring Jack asked if everyone was ready to sail on in the morning, Yan had been the first to get started, causing Roaring Jack to pat him on the back affectionately. Cam and Skarm exchanged glances at Yan's fawning behaviour, and wondered how much it was influencing Roaring Jack. "'Ready about?' Roaring Jack put the helm alee. Yan started towards the other side of the cockpit so that he could look landward, while Red Ian and Skarm controlled the main and jib-sheets with the ease of long practice. As the molly turned, steadied upright, and heeled over on the port tack, Cam glimpsed something on the horizon. "'Sails!' he yelled. "'Astern to seaward. There's three. No, four of them!' All heads turned in the same moment. Skarm shaded his eyes. Red Ian stared. Roaring Jack's left eyebrow rose and his forehead crinkled. Cam stood on the cabin top. "'Mighty close together,' muttered Red Ian. "'They're hull down. I can't see how many there are,' said Skarm. "'There's only one,' said Cam. "'And she's four-masted.' "'Go on,' said Yan. "'There's never a boat with more than three masts.' "'You've seen one yourself, Yan,' said Skarm, "'back when we were at the empty village.' "'Can you be sure, Cam?' he asked. "'Your eyes are younger than mine.' Cam nodded. "'I see her now. "'She's tacking toward shore,' said Roaring Jack. "'And uh, we'll just keep him at a distance. "'Ease the main a bit. "'We'll head in toward shore and shallow water. "'Something that big has got to draw more than we do.' Until Cam's sighting, they had been sailing comfortably, lulled by the fair wind and the soothing sounds of the Molly's progress. Now they were fully alert, one moment staring forward at the land, then the next glancing astern at the horizon, where they soon glimpsed a dark hull below the many sails. Gradually details became clearer as the ship approached. "'What do you make of her, Skarm?' asked Roaring Jack. "'Can't make it out for sure, Skipper, but—' It looks like she's rigged with a great 
big mainsail on her aftermast, and she's carrying a mess of staysails on the other. I can see two, no, three jibs, said Cam. Thumpin' great long hull, said Red Ian. It's hard to say, Red, said Scarham, his voice so carefully in control that Cam wondered what he was thinking. Like us, she's close-hauled, so we're looking at her just off the bow. Makes it difficult to judge size and, and rig. They all stared in silence as the ship grew closer, none of them wanting to express their concerns. Eventually Yan could not keep quiet. She's closing in on us, he said, his voice rising. Whoa, exclaimed Red Ian admiringly. That's some bone she's got between her teeth. The ship was now bearing down on them with astonishing speed, the white curl at her bow now fully visible. She was moving against the wind at a speed and angle the Molly could never hope to match, and they all knew it. The three eldest deliberately suppressed their rising anxiety, but Yan could not imitate the other's composure. "'They're coming after us, Skipper!' Yan's voice was almost a scream. "'Chances are they're curious, same as us,' said Scarham. "'Hold on now,' said Ridian. "'She's easing up. We're getting more of a broadside view.' It was as he said. The huge ship no longer pursued the Molly landward, but had turned to skirt the shore. "'Trim the sails,' ordered Roaring Jack. "'We'll match her direction.' "'Well, it's for sure we won't match her speed,' muttered Redian, as he bent to adjust the mainsheet. "'Wind must have back,' said Skarm, as he trimmed the jib. "'And it's freshening,' said Roaring Jack. "'Let's look lively now. Show em we know what we're about.' The ship was now close enough for the crew of the Molly to make out individual people working the sails of the huge vessel. As they watched, Crew members in groups of twos and threes adjusted three overlapping sails above the long bowsprit. Those staysails between the masts looked like they slung jibs upside down, said Radian. Could be that's why she goes to windward so well, said Skarm. This calm assessment of the ship's overwhelming size and power was too much for Yan. He stood stiff in the corner of the cockpit, unwilling to look. "'Luff the jib, Skarm,' said Roaring Jack. "'Let's be polite.' "'Cause there's bugger all else we can do,' muttered Redian. Skarm let fly the jib-sheet so that the sail flapped in the way village boats acknowledged each other on meeting. "'They don't reply,' said Cam. "'Give him a chance,' said Roaring Jack. "'Mayhap they think we're just sloppy sailors.' "'Could be that they just don't know about luffin to say hello,' said Skarm. They stared at the ship, still marvelling at her length and the height of her masts. As they watched, the leading jib trembled and then flapped briefly, before being hardened in. Then they were no longer looking at the ship broadside on, but rather seeing her quarter and then her stern, as she sailed close-hauled away from the land. They replied, said Skarm. They're going, Yan, said Cam. You can look now. Yan got to his feet stared at the departing ship and shuddered. "'Just go home,' he moaned softly. "'So,' said Reddy, "'and my guess is them was the men of the sea.' "'Not exactly friendly, were they?' said Cam. "'On the other hand, they didn't attack,' said Skarm. "'They may sail forevermore,' Cram quoted, "'but we'll need food and water real soon, wherever we end up.' "'True,' said Roaring Jack. 
We'll be finding a cove we a stream, perhaps a spring, where we can spend the night. And then tomorrow we'll be on our way east. Where we're going on? asked Anne. We're going to find Strayer, Yan. Now we know he's not dead, Roaring Jack explained with painful care. It's me duty to his ma. And I don't know why you're not glad he's alive, said Redian. Oh, I am, Red, I am, said Yan, with obviously feigned enthusiasm. You sure didn't show it when Cam and Skarm gave us the good news last night. I was, um, I was surprised. Well, anyway, and we're going on, said Roaring Jack, as if coming to a difficult conclusion. Red Ian grunted approval that Roaring Jack's mind was made up. Skarm and Cam wondered how long the skipper would stick to his plan. It was past noon the next day when the Molly's jib flapped. Cam hardened the sheet to quiet it and glanced at Roaring Jack for approval. The skipper nodded at him and then repeated the gesture as Red Ian trimmed the mainsail. They had just rounded a point where wind-bent pines stood above a rocky foreshore edged by the white of breaking waves, and they were now heading across a wide bay towards another pine-topped point. Beyond the dark green forests that almost reached the water, rounded hills rose up, one behind the other, into the dim distance. "'The wind's backing,' said Yan. "'More likely we're gradually picking up a bit more south in our course, at each headland,' said Skarm from the companionway. "'Are you ready for something to eat?' "'Pass it up, Skarm, and join us,' said the skipper. "'The molly's steady enough.' Radian sat on the cabin roof, his feet dangling into the cockpit, Skarm and Yan perched on the starboard rail. Roaring Jack was at his place by the tiller, and Cam stood a step down in the companionway, plates and mugs on the cockpit sole in front of him. Watery sunlight warmed their faces, but silvery cloud across the whole sky made it difficult to tell the passing of time. "'Not often you get a steady offshore breeze,' said Skarn. "'Most of the time there's puffs and calms.' "'She's slipping along right nice,' said Roaring Jack around a mouthful of ship's biscuit. They had spent the previous night in a little bag-shaped cove, where they'd found a spring of sweet water only a few paces above the tide-line. They'd stretched their legs on a shingle beach, built a fire, and watched it until the embers barely glowed. A night's sleep and hot food on rising had prepared them for the day, and in different ways they all hoped that something would happen to justify their journey eastward. Roaring Jack spoke only occasionally, mostly to offer sympathy and encouragement to Yan, who remained apprehensive. Skarm and Cam observed the two of them disgustedly. Red Ian was contentedly looking at the wake from his seat on the cabin top when sails appeared over the horizon. He slid into the cockpit and narrowed his eyes to see better in the diffuse light. Skipper, we may have company, he said quietly. They all turned to follow his gaze. Right sure, Red. It's that ship again. "'How's she get astern of us?' asked Yan. "'She was heading for the southeast horizon when we saw her last.' "'Doubled back, I guess,' said Skarn. "'Question is, why?' "'I got a bad feeling we're the answer,' said Roaring Jack. "'She's seen us, and she's heading our way. "'Can't be no other reason she'd turn towards this bay. "'Can't we get close to land, where she won't go?' Yan asked querulously. "'Why would we be running away?' asked Redian. "'She was harmless yesterday. 
"'We'll split the difference,' said Roaring Jack, with an assurance belied by his worried frown. "'Harden in the sheets, get rid of the food and stuff. Cam, we'll plan on scraping past the next point just as close as we can. So get your lead line, Scarm.' The molly heeled to port as the skipper brought her closer to the wind's eye. One moment his eyebrows wriggled up and down as he checked the sails, the next he was frowning over his shoulder. "'She's nowhere near close-hauled,' said Scarm quietly, "'and we're as tight as we can go.' They all watched the ship coming up behind them, her many sails in smooth, overlapping curves. "'Sure is a pretty sight,' said Red Ian. "'Pretty?' Yan muttered, looking terrified. "'If this is the ship that attacked Teenmouth,' Cam began, but left the thought unfinished when he saw Roaring Jack's face twist. Skarm completed his thought. Uh, "'There's not a lot we can do about it.' Roaring Jack glanced astern. "'She'll be stealing our wind soon enough. Don't nobody go to sleep on me. Be ready to move right quick.' The great ship was now close. The bow-wave curled back around her black hull like a fanciful moustache, and above it the long bowsprit pointed straight for the molly, at a height that threatened to impale her sail. Yan cowered in the lee of the cockpit, overcome by what he saw and heard. With the calm of being unable to alter the situation, the rest of the crew of the Molly watched the layers of sail tower over them. As the ship came up to windward, the noise of her passage through the air and water blew downwind into their ears. "'Stand by!' roaring Jack's voice cut through the watery sounds. The Molly rocked back and forth, first in the ship's bow-wave, and again as three masts full of sail blanketed the wind, and the little boat rolled back and forth, her sails slack. "'Going about! We'll pass under her stern!' Roaring Jack shoved the tiller away from him, and the molly turned sluggishly towards the ship's side as if to ram the bigger vessel. Roaring Jack glanced upwards, and set his jaw as if expecting the worst. A little closer, and the molly's bowsprit would have been snapped on the ship's side. He was taking a breath to give his next order when something slapped his face, nearly making him let go the tiller. He staggered, looked up, and saw five men in black clothes swinging down on ropes, one of which coiled at his feet. For a moment they dangled in mid-air above him. An instant later two booted feet struck him on the shoulder, felling him to the cockpit sole. Pain turned to fury as he heard the thumping arrival of other sailors boarding his boat. He scrambled to his hands and knees, only to be kicked into the side of the cockpit on top of Yan. He got to his feet, but the first thing he saw was a knife, held so close to his face that its edge sliced across his vision. When he looked beyond it, most of the fight was over. Skarm had been kneed in the stomach and was doubled up on the cockpit sole, trying to regain his breath. Cam clutched with both hands at a bare forearm, pressing across his throat, while his feet kicked air, shin-high above his captor's feet. On the foredeck, Red Ian struggled with two black-clad figures. A convulsive effort, and one of them tumbled backwards off the cabin roof, landed on the starboard combing, slid into Skarm, where he clumsily got to his feet and stood swaying. On the foredeck, Red Ian's massive shoulders flexed as he held the second man by the shirt-front in one hand and hit him repeatedly in the face with the other fist. Blood dropped onto the foredeck from a cut lip and a squashed nose. The owner of the knife glinting in Roaring Jack's face spoke almost casually, 
Tell him to stop, or we'll do the four of you, starting with the boys. He's up, Red, growled Roaring Jack. Red Ian stopped hitting his victim, but continued to hold him at arm's length. Not enough, said the voice in Jack's ear. The knife migrated from the centre of Roaring Jack's vision to become an evil promise against his throat. Red, let me! His shout came just before Red Ian collapsed face downwards on the deck, felled by the boots of a fresh attacker who had swung down onto him from yet another rope. The black-clad sailors kicked at Red's body, so that he did not slide into the water that splashed and frothed in the narrow gap between the molly and the black vertical wall that was the big ship's side. The pressure on Cam's windpipe eased, his toes touched the cabin top, but the arm around his neck did not go away. Wide-eyed with amazement at the sudden brutal efficiency with which they'd been boarded, he stood looking at Roaring Jack. Beside him, Yan crouched, babbling, "'Don't let them hurt me, please, please, don't let them, please, please, please!' "'Give it a rest, Yan,' growled Skarm. "'Right,' said the voice behind him. "'We'll take the boys and the big fellow, if he's still alive.' As the knife-wielding sailor guarding Roaring Jack reached for a dangling rope, the skipper grabbed him by his neck-length hair. "'Get off my boat, you filthy pirates!' The sheer volume of the skipper's shout momentarily froze the black-clad attackers. Roaring Jack seized the sailor's knife-arm, turned and hipped through him over the molly's turned and hipped through him over the molly's stern. However, to Roaring Jack's dismay, the men on the foredeck had looped a rope from their ship under Red Ian's armpits. As the molly started to veer away from the huge black hull, Hard hands grabbed Cam and half-shoved, half-threw him at the scrambling net that had just uncoiled over the big ship's stern, almost to the level of the molly's deck. When Yan did not move, one of the men kneed him in the seat of his breeks, making him lurch out of the molly across the gap of the tumbling water and cling reflexively to the net, open-mouthed, as the two remaining attackers swarmed up the ropes and Red Ian's inert body was hauled up after them. Come, Yan, jump! he bellowed. But hands were already locked on the two young men's wrists, hauling them upwards. Cam kicked wildly but ineffectively as he was yanked aboard the ship and dumped staggering onto the deck. Behind him he heard a shriek as two others dealt with Yan even less gently. Cam stared at an expanse of deck as wide as the molly was long. To his right, Red Ian was being swung on board and lowered onto the deck like a huge rag doll. As his body thumped onto the deck beside him, Cam knelt beside the big man and held his head in his hands. To his relief and surprise, Red Ian was breathing. How many did I get, Cam? One out like a light, one in the ocean, two needin' help aboard their ship, Cam replied. Give me a bit of room to get up, lad. Where's the skipper? "'Welcome aboard, lovers!' They looked up at a tall, black-clad figure. A lean, clean-shaven face looked back at them, smiling sardonically. "'I am Mufrid, master of Elusive.' He barely turned his head to give orders to the sailors. "'Have the shirt off this boy and hold him still. Go find the recent arrivals. Bring the girl. She's the only one with any spirit.' Two black-clad men advanced on Yan, who was still kneeling on the deck. 
He whimpered as they both drew their knives and slit his shirt from waist to neck and down his arms to his wrists. They dragged him to his feet and turned him around for the black-haired man's inspection. At a nod they let him go, and he slumped onto his knees, cringing. Three sailors herded four people up the forward companionway toward the master. The black-clad man in charge of the group led a woman with two children close by her side. A seaman held a tall girl of sixteen or seventeen in a painful grip just above her elbow. The girl's chestnut hair was tangled, the hem of her dress torn, and there was a bruise on her cheek, but she held her head up. Even though there were tears in her eyes, she twisted against her captor as he propelled her towards the ship's master. She stood defiantly in front of him, glancing up through her tangled hair. "'Do you know this lad?' demanded Mufred. The girl winced as she rubbed her sore arm, but she looked steadily at Jan, frowned, and then nodded. "'Who is he?' "'He was on the boat, the little one, that came to Teenmouth before you did. He's the one who almost killed Streya.' "'It's not true!' said Jan. "'I never—' "'You sure did,' said the girl. "'I saw it happen.' You hit him with an oar, and then you'd have gone on hitting him until he was dead. But Jeb and Daniel shouted you off. You saw them, and you ran off, scared. And I was there when they took Strayer back to Jeb's house, and when Teenmouth sent Strayer off to the castle as our scholar. I even danced with him. Red Ian got to his feet and staggered towards Yan, one massive fist cocked. You rotten little! Taking one swift stride, Mufrid caught Red Ian's arm. But though he was quick, he was not strong enough. The big man's other fist swung low, and Mufrid doubled over, the wind driven out of him. Red Ian turned toward Jan again. Three sailors rushed forward, knives at the ready, but Mufrid straightened up and waved them away. "'Get back!' he yelled. "'Mufrid needs no help!' He launched a kick at the back of Red Ian's knee, but the big man turned just in time, and the two grappled face to face. "'Where's my boat?' growled Red Ian. "'Your filthy little bait-buckets in my wake!' Mufred spat into Red Ian's face. "'Where you're going!' His right hand struck like a snake. Fingers clawed across Red Ian's face. Red Ian yelled as nails caught the corner of one eye. But if Mufred had thought he could cow the biggest man from the village, he was painfully mistaken. Red Ian head-butted Mufred in the nose, wrapped both his arms around the master's waist, heaved him up over his shoulder, and strode towards the ship's side, Mufred pummeling ineffectively at the big man's back with one fist, the other groping for the knife at his waist. "'Scum-sucker!' grunted Ridian. "'You're the one who's going swimming!' Mufred tried to stab, but his knife slashed in a shallow cut across Red Ian's back. Mufred wrapped one arm around the rail and tried a second time. Redian went down on one knee to get his shoulder under Mufrid's body. His foot slipped on his own blood, and he, too, had to clutch at the rail. Mufrid seized the opportunity and launched a roundhouse kick that connected just under Red Ian's ear. While the big man was momentarily stunned, Mufrid's men ran up, and together they heaved Red Ian over the side. He fell with an incoherent yell of fury, cut short by the ocean. Cam ran to the rail in time to see an arm reach up in the ship's wake, and red hair vanishing into a wave. "'Red!' Cam shouted. Dishevelled, panting, his nose bleeding profusely, Mufrid stopped Cam with an outstretched bloody hand. Cam looked into eyes wide with rage, 
and despite himself he obeyed. Forget him. He's done. The Molly, that crab chaser's too far away to save him. He's gone. Get back with the others. You, give me your shirt. One of the sailors stripped off his shirt and passed it to Mufrid, who wiped his face and hands and dropped the garment on the deck. Now, I'll have some answers from all three of you. Mufrid's eyes still stared fixedly, but his voice was calm. He waved away the men who had saved him and advanced menacingly towards the three young people. Yan was still huddled on his knees, but the girl stood, wide-eyed, calm beside her. Don't think you can lie to me. I had some of the truth already, but I aim to find out more. One of the men I <clears throat> interrogated let slip that your little coaster visited Teenmouth earlier this year and left one young man behind. He also said that he then headed inland, taking with him something that interests me greatly. Unfortunately, he was not able to tell me more, or anyone else anything, for that matter. So, let's begin again with you, girl. What's your name? Becky. Nice name, said Mufred, with a pleasant tone that deceived no one. Do you know these lads? I don't know the little one, but this is the one who nearly killed Strayer. Say that last name again, slowly. Ah, uh, Strayer? Hmm. Curious. Could you be trying to say Estrella, I wonder? Tell me, Becky, how old would you say this Strayer might have been? Older than him, said Becky, pointing at Yan, but not by much. So some young man stole a name. What else did he steal, I wonder? Becky, did this mysterious young man own a piece of jewellery? He had a bracelet with a green stone in it. Did you see this thing? No, no, but we, my friends, we all knew about it. Hmm, small villagers share secrets, said Mufrid, and nodded thoughtfully. Then he turned to face Yan, his voice sharp as the snap of a whip. What do you have to say, lad? She's lying. Yan blurted. I never tried to kill Strayer. I was trying to stop him. He, he was going to jump ship. He was never one of us. It was an, it was an accident. It was an accident. I never meant to hurt him. Hmm. So that's your story, said Mufrid, as he turned towards Cam. What's yours? Cam looked up at Mufrid, and his usual quick wits deserted him. Perhaps the mind behind those disturbing eyes believed Yan's babbling response. Mufrid's greenish gaze held his with an intensity that was more chilling than hate or anger. Momentarily unable to argue against Yan's partial truce, Cam did not reply. No answer. Pity. I hate to spoil a pretty girl's looks, but if you don't talk now you're going to watch and listen to me working on her face. Hold her. Two men grabbed Becky by the arms, forcing them upwards behind her back. Mufrid raised his bloody knife. A fresh voice interrupted. Father, no. Uh, you like this one, Debbie. You're feeling sorry for her, maybe. You are so soft. If you didn't work the stones for me, I'd wonder if you were family. For the first time Cam noticed a boy who was taller than he, although obviously younger. He had been standing a few paces away near the man who tended the wheel. Cam glanced back and forth between Mufrid and his son, suddenly reminded of Estrella. "'Don't touch her. I, I can explain,' said Cam. Mufrid raised his eyebrows and chin expectantly. "'Estrella,' 
said Cam carefully. The boy Becky saw is from the village. His mother named him after his da. Most of us call him Strayer, because nobody can say his name the way you just did. Estrella, Cam nodded. Mufrid snorted derisively. How did the lad Becky saw at Teenmouth steal Estrella's stone? And why didn't young Debbie, my sensitive son over there, know about it until this year? Cam considered. Mufrid took a step towards Becky. Hang on, said Cam. It's just that some of the story happened before I was born. Tell me. Strayer's father, the first Strayer, was rescued by the Molly, my boat. He married Alana. She's, she was, a woman in the village. The story goes he gave Alana a bracelet when they were wed, but he was drowned before Strayer, his son, that is, was born. Go on. This spring, the Molly sailed south with young Strayer aboard. When they came back, he was missing. We didn't know why, till now, that is. The girl says Yan tried to kill him, and I believe her. Were you along for the first trip? Cam shook his head. But I can tell you that Strayer took his father's bracelet with him. I got a quick look at it before they left, and it glowed green. Father, I told you that there was— That was spindrift. No, father. I said there was an active stone to the north, and then I couldn't see it for Spindrift's shipstone. And then I picked it up to the south, and we've been—I know what we've been doing. But what has Estrella's whelp been doing? Could my brother have sired a stone-starter on this lubber woman? I don't know, father. You don't know anything, Debbie. So shut your mouth until I ask you to open it. He paused, and when he spoke again, it was with a return of his unnerving calm. I need to ponder what this boy has told me, and speculate as to where the stone might be. He spoke carefully, as if imitating the words and style of someone he had often heard. It's on Cygnus, father. I told you not—what did you say? The stone has to be on Cygnus. There can't be two of them. We thought—I thought—it might be on the coaster, and now we know it wasn't, so— Debbie, come here. The boy stepped forward, obedient but apprehensive. His father took a step towards him, and Dabby tensed. But instead of the blow he was expecting, Mufrid patted him on the shoulder. "'Good lad. Here, have the girl.' Cam's eyes widened as Mufrid grabbed Becky's arm and pushed her at his son, whose mouth fell open as he looked into the girl's aghast face. They stood awkwardly side by side, alternately glancing at each other and then looking away in embarrassment. Mufrid ignored them, and turned to Yan. "'Can you say anything that might even make me consider believing in your side of the story?' "'Cam, tell them that—tell them—' Yan stammered. Cam rounded on him fiercely. "'Don't speak to me, you piddling, cowardly, crap-hanging, rotten, treacherous, murdering liar!' Hufrin watched, one side of his mouth twitching. "'Nice to have friends,' he said. "'So, lads, we have the outline of the story. "'And now I'm going to find out a whole lot more. "'Take them all below.' "'At your command,' muttered sailors standing behind Cam and Yan. Mufrid strode down the stern companionway, the bloody knife still in his right hand. Dabby held out a hand to Becky, who gave her head a little shake, but nonetheless walked beside him. Mufrid's men pushed Yan and Cam ahead of them so that they nearly fell down the companionway into the narrow passage below. 
Another shove in the back thrust them astern towards an open door, through which Cam staggered into the stern cabin. When he regained his balance, he was facing Mufrid, who looked at him across a table. Dabby and Becky stood uncomfortably to one side as far as possible from Mufrid. Cam stood to his full height, not for the first time wishing it was more, and looked back as calmly as he could. Yan was beside him, shuffling from one foot to the other, with his lower lip quivering one moment and the next scowling, as if bad temper could make him seem to be in control of himself. Mufrid scanned their faces, relishing their distress. He set his knife on the desk, pulled open a drawer, and brought out an egg-shaped metal object a little larger than his fist. He undid a catch, and the top third flipped open. Soft green light illuminated his hands as he carefully spilled a glowing green stone into a little nest of dark fabric. Cam saw Dabby fidget nervously, as if holding back from making an intervention that he knew would set off Mufrid's unstable temper. "'What do you think this is?' Mufrid demanded. "'It's—it's it's a stone, like Strayer's, but bigger,' said Cam. "'Tell them what it is, Dabby.' It's twisters, uh, spindrifts, shipstone. I know that. Tell them, simple son, not me. Explain. It's the navigation stone from a sister ship that we took when, when, when we did justice to the oath-breaking crew that had gone lubber along with their mutinous master. He stared at the uncomprehending looks on Cam and Yan's faces. Go on, Debbie. I, we, we followed the stone to where one of the great ships, like this one, had been scuttled by the crew, masts cut down and turned into a wharf. The crew had taken over an abandoned village. They were cleaning it up, getting ready to live there, so, so, he stammered into silence, unwilling to go on. So, after we had amused ourselves with the folks ashore, I found Alner and took his stone from him. Mufrid interrupted Dabby impatiently. I would have had his clasp, too, but he drowned it. Mufrid turned to Yan and smiled without humour or compassion. The stone is power, little man. Power to command. Power to plot any course. Power to know the fleet's movements. Do you want to know how long it took before Alner gave up his stone? Would you like to know how I convinced him? Or would you rather I just started in on you and let you guess? He paused, then leaned forward, locked eyes with Yan, and spoke with absolute assurance that he would be obeyed. "'Tell me, where is this Estrella?' The cabin was quiet, except for sea sounds through the scuttles. Faced with having to watch Yan being tortured, Cam intervened. "'He doesn't know.' "'But maybe you do?' "'Listen, if we knew, we wouldn't be looking for him,' said Cam. "'That's why we came back south.' Oh, but you do have a broad-reach guess. He's on Cygnus, isn't he? Cam chose his words carefully. I've never seen another ship like this one. We were looking for Strayer in Teenmouth. It was you what said he'd gone south by land. True, said Mufred. So tell me again why you were all southward bound to find your missing crewman when this whelp had told you he was dead. Jan told us Strayer was dead. But his ma wouldn't believe it, neither did Scarm and me. Then she was dead, and that made Roaring Jack, the Molly skipper, decide that he owed it to her memory that he should find out what really happened. Now we know. This girl, 
Becky just told us. Yan left Straya for dead. This whimpering lubber? He hit him across the back of his head, said Becky. I'm sorry, Yan whined. I meant just to stop him, but I— He dithered from one foot to the other, awed by Mufrid's scornful glare. You took him from behind and still couldn't kill him, and now you're sorry. You're really useless, aren't you? Yan tried to seem engagingly pathetic, but only looked stupid. Mufrid spoke to Cam as though offering a drink to a friend. Would you like me to kill him? Cam looked at him blankly. Be happy to do the job. Mufrid picked up his knife, one side of his lip curled upwards, and he began a slow, menacing walk around the table, his eyes fixed on his target. Yan turned his head this way and that, his lips quivering. Then, with a wordless gasp, he lunged away from Mufrid, grabbed the green stone from the table, took two strides to the ship's stern, and held the jewel above his head over the open scuttle. "'Leave me alone, or I'll—I'll—' I'll... His voice quavered, and his hand started to shake. Then his arm, then his head jerked back and forth. Mufrid's arm came up, and his knife flew across the cabin. Yan screamed as the blade struck below his armpit, pinning his shirt to the ship's side. His hand opened, but the green stone stuck to his palm like a hot coal. He screamed once more, shook his hand violently, and the stone vanished out the open scuttle into the sea. Yan looked incredulously at the palm of his hand, and collapsed onto his knees, sobbing. "'You're done, lubber!' Mufrid raged across the cabin and yanked his knife out of the ship's side. Yan cowered, quivering, trying to protect his face and head with his shaking hands. The point of the knife wove back and forth, as Mufrid tensed for a single killing blow. The three young people watched, aghast. "'No!' screamed Becky. Surprisingly, Mufrid paused, turned, replaced the knife carefully on the table, and smiled as if nothing had happened. But his eyes were strangely wide and bright, and his chest rose and fell as he forced himself to breathe normally. "'You're absolutely right,' he said softly. "'This is far too quick.' "'Dabby, have someone take this fish below where I can gut clean and dress him.' Dabby swallowed, but he did not move. Mufrid's mouth opened so wide that his entire face distorted. "'Ouch!' he shouted with appalling force. Now! Go! Neither Cam, Dabby, nor Becky could get through the cabin door quickly enough. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Australia's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.